Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Welcome to Sound and Vision. Ellen Harvey is an artist known for her work in many different media, from painting to installation, sculpture to video. After Harvard and Yale Law School, she decided instead to pursue art and is shown all around the world with some of her most recognizable work being the many public art projects she's made over the years. We sat down in her amazing Williamsburg home studio and talked about the role of painting, her many projects, and the sublime. Here's our conversation. So you you were going to see work, like you were going to museums and yeah. seeing art at a very early age. I was really obsessed with paintings. I mean, when I was six, for my sixth birthday, I asked to go, I wanted to go see paintings. That's what mm-hmm. I asked for. And, I, and we were living at the time still in Germany. So we took the train and went to Florence and spent a week, my mother and I, just looking at paintings. Yeah. Um, and I still really remembered it. I, I hadn't. I went back for the first time after when I was 28, and I was really surprised at how much I'd recalled. Mm-hmm. I'd also bought all the catalogues of all the museums, which I then obsessively poured over. It has. It's funny to think about how much of an effect that has on you when you're really young, going to museums. Because I remember, I have this memory of when I grew up in Pittsburgh of going to the Carnegie Museum and seeing this, it was just a big color field painting. And I don't remember who it was, but I just remember sitting in front of it. It was massive. It was yeah. like the size of a football field, it felt like, you know. And, and I just thought, this is like a crazy thing, you know. It was just so awe-inspiring, and it felt like I felt like when I went to the museum, there was just a complete different kind of angle on looking at everything. And it had a big impact on me. And I, I think that maybe shapes you when you're early in one way or another, you know, as, as far as thinking about how art can be transformative. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's the sheer mad glamour of museums. Mm-hmm. Nothing else in life was anywhere near as exciting. Um, you know, there wasn't all this gold, and there weren't all these naked people, and, you know, life otherwise which really wasn't as exciting, in my opinion, as a kid. And yeah. It, um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to be part of that. Yeah, I can, and it's funny, too, because thinking about your work, you've had the opportunities over the years of doing a lot of museum projects. You know, is that something that you channel into or you feel like, you know? <laughs> well, definitely the piece Museum of Failure that I made for the um, Whitney Biennial in 2008 was a direct shout out to going to the Uffizi with my mother yeah. because the colors are actually like a, the colors of the Uffizi. And it was very, there was even a little Polaroid hidden in the corner that show, was a, the cover of um, the catalog that I bought back when I was six. So That was a direct reference. It was a direct reference, yeah. yeah. So, but I, I like making museums because I like the idea of, I mean, museums are so messy. They're mm-hmm. such these weird, messy, aspirational sort of places that try to make sense of something, but then they always fail and it's always incomplete and doesn't quite work. And, and it's great being, trying making a museum because you can be more than one person. Yeah. Whereas you know, I always find it quite difficult to figure out who I am. So, you know, being something that allows me to inhabit a whole variety of, of different voices is, is kind of fun. Well, and thinking of that too, and, and knowing a little bit about how you grew up and you were semi-nomadic, or you, you moved we around. We moved a lot, yeah. Did that, do you think that shaped your 
practice at all or had some sort of effect? I mean, I'm sure everyone's background has some sort of unconscious effect on the way they make work, but I'm wondering if, if you're, there's something conscious or something that you can tap into now, looking back, that there was a formative process there. I think the thing that moving around does teach you is that people have very different ideas of what's normal in different places. Mm -hmm. So the idea that people, so the narrative constructs that people use to organize how they see themselves and how they see other people vary. So, so you can, you know, something can be successful in one place, unsuccessful in another place. Um, that, I think, that kind of sense of kind of narrative disarray um, is something that's always been really important for me. I'm, I'm really interested in this desire for universal experience and then the fact that it's, Im it's impossible to achieve. So I think you know, failure is this sort of big organizing principle for what I do because I love this idea that people are constantly trying to make sense of things and trying to make things be extraordinary and then it always collapses. Yeah. That's like the human condition. Yeah, yeah. And that to me is, is just completely fascinating. And I'm sure that has something to do with kind of moving around a lot and showing up somewhere and being like, you know, I moved to Milwaukee when I was 14 and it was like the end of, you know, punk in England. So I show up and I'm wearing this big fluffy sweater and these really tight pants and uncomfortably tight pants and at school it's the middle of like the sort of preppy handbook thing yeah you know and you're just like oh god you know i've totally missed the boat yet again you know i completely can't figure this out you know, what is it with the socks i don't know so yeah well and in your work too you seem to i'm imagining embrace this challenge of like a site-specific or a it's like a show-specific approach to a piece, or it's obvious that some of the pieces you've done have been in, you know, direct collaboration with where that piece is going. And has it helped you in that sense of like moving around and being able to adapt? I grew up in a place where, like, I was shell. I didn't travel until I got to college. You know, my world was like in this one part of a city, in this one part of Pennsylvania. And it, it's just, I think when I started to travel, it really blew me away. And a lot of my work became about kind of globalism or looking at the world and but through the filter of how I grew up and how I you know mm -hmm. my aesthetic was formed growing up but I wonder if moving around a bit and kind of navigating different areas and not just like geographically but also sensitivities and what you know what works in some places and doesn't in others that there's an embracing of that challenge of adapting or to address a specific idea within a given mm -hmm. place I had never thought about that. Um, I do love that that sort of feeling of being airlifted into a situation and being like, okay, like what's missing here, or what what's the sort of unspoken story here? What do people secretly desire here that I could make happen? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that probably is related to that because you know, when you move a lot, you do spend a lot of time being like, okay. So uh, how does a girl behave here? Right. You know what 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 are people expecting here? And it makes it quite hard to get a real sense of who you are because you're spending so much time trying to kind of either fit in or stand out or just give up on the whole thing. Um, but as a, in terms of art, I think that's a um, an interesting thing to think about because once you start doing it, people also ask you again and again to come up with ideas for particular situations. Right. I, mean, I sort of fell into that. I didn't wasn't there wasn't any kind of master plan. But now, you know, I get to do things like 
going to Belgium and having people say, well, do you have an idea for our church that we're not using anymore? And I'm mm-hmm. like, you're not using anymore? Want to blow it up? And they're like, how about a controlled demolition? Okay. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, you have a practice, uh, like painting is a large part of your work. Yeah. Right? I was looking at a lot of your paintings and thinking about, you know, your relationship to that process and how, you know, or just the mural, let's say the mural, the MTA yeah. one, Yankee Stadium, where, you know, I love those sunset images, you know, those, mm-hmm. that, that, and kind of movement over time through those images. And I thought about how that would look or what that would be if it weren't related to that specific place. And if it were just in a gallery, you know, on the wall and seven pieces, that's something you wouldn't be interested in, right? Or No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think I would, I don't think I'd be able to just paint a sunset. I mean, I could. I mean, what the hell? You know, maybe I could do, do whatever that's, I like. That's what I'm interested in, though, yeah. because you. it seems that you have that so. within you, that the painting doesn't exist in and of itself. It's you like to relate it to um, the environment, or it, it's engaging within a specific place, and that has a large part um, to do with the content of that image. I think that's true. I think that nothing exists outside of its context. Right. I mean, I think I, I did a show once called Context is Everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so even you know, showing something in a gallery has a context of its own. I've made a lot of pieces that I show like, on wallpaper in galleries, I guess, to provide a kind of domestic context yeah. for the piece. So, I mean, I love painting. Like, I, you know, painting is delicious. It's mm-hmm. so fun. And it's just, you know, it's, and it's this great low-tech kind of thing. Yeah. where everyone can kind of relate to it. Everyone's helped, like, try to paint, like, something at some point in their lives. So it has this great outreach, but it also is so sad because, you know, it's like this thing that used to do all this stuff, like you used to have portraits if you wanted to have, like, a picture of your lover or, you know, or, or you would have, like, a you would go to Venice and Canaletto would paint something for you or, or if you wanted to imagine the future, you would go, you know, see some crazy, like, Martin painting of the apocalypse and all that stuff has now migrated, you know, to like, you know, movies, to photography, yeah. to, um, you know, narrative painting has definitely moved, I think, to, to, to the movies and to video. And so all these things that painting used to do, it doesn't do anymore. Yeah. It's like it's, it's, it's kind of lost, it's become utterly useless and its only real function is to be an art signifier. And... I love useless things. I mean, I, it, there's, I'm kind of fascinated by this idea that the thing becomes more artistic the more useless it is. Mm-hmm. And so painting is now so useless that it's so artistic. Right. And like, you, you make a painting and people immediately all over the world are like, oh yeah, that must be art. Right. And you're like, why is that? Like, why is it art? I mean, I think that's why I did the New York Beautification Project mm-hmm. where I was like painting over graffiti. And part of it was just to sort of explore like who's allowed to break the law in our society and basically, you know, point out that being a white woman in your 30s is like the best possible demographic for doing that. But but another part of it was to say, well, look, you know, what makes a thing art versus graffiti for people? Yeah. You know, is it if you take it off the canvas, but it's still oil paint and it still like looks like the super traditional, like, you know, picturesque landscape. Is it still art? Does that trump other things? So I think that to me is, yeah, I'm fascinated by that. And I also love the way in which painting is something that people have a direct relationship to. Mm-hmm. And so it's very seductive. I mean, I'm like a shameless popularist. I love making stuff that a lot of people can like relate to easily. And then I like to sort of, you know, in an ideal world, sort of seduce them into thinking 
So you're like, look how beautiful and cool, and look at those naked people or whatever. And then the next, and then they're like, oh, okay, that's weird. Yeah. I was one, I'm thinking about like Michelangelo or people like that who were commissioned to make these paintings that were, that serve that purpose yeah. you're talking about for recording these people or this mm -hmm. event and what they would think of being liberated in a way, or maybe yeah. they would be, they would feel like, yes, that's what painting should be. I don't have to hide this content within <laughs> the context of what's appropriate for my commission. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I wonder mm -hmm. what they would think of the role of, you know, well, photography really made that big change for painting where yeah. it just became not a recording device anymore and really liberated. Well, I don't, I guess I would see it as being liberated. I mean, there's a, there's a plus and a minus to that. You know? It definitely cuts both ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of freedom to what you can do as a painter today that would have been unimaginable. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's also something where, you know, the more you look at the fact that painting exists in this sort of social space of the art world, it's, it's fascinating because you're like, so how does it function now? Like, what's it meant to be doing? Like, yeah. why, why do people care about it? Yeah. And, and I, could, I care massively about it, but I'm always wondering why. Yeah. I think it's, well, it is romantic. You know, it's, it's that, now it's that thing that we don't really need, but we do need it, you know what I mean? I well, feel like it's, in general, it just has, painting has this thing, you know, and it's mm -hmm. indescribable. And you, I don't know, it just, it, it's the one, or not the one, but it, it just has its own idiosyncrasies and its own beauty and it, it's its own history. And, you know, and that, the piece that you did um, for the Turner. Well, Turner had this thing where he, the, the turn, I mean, for the Turner Contemporary, yeah. for the opening. Um, yeah, he lived between London and Margate sort of mm -hmm. towards the end of his life. He had, um, his, he lived with his landlady. He had this whole old, like, other existence as, as Admiral Booth mm -hmm. in Margate. And so they fetishistically built the museum on the site where her house was. Um, Turner would have been so psyched because he always wanted to be super famous, and he was, and now he's still super famous. So, yeah. you know, success. But um, but the gallery that I made um, was actually a replica of a gallery that he had in London. His, he, he opened it when he was like 28, mm -hmm. which is as unusual then as yeah. it would be now to like open a gallery devoted just to your work. Um, as an artist, and uh, he kept it till he died, and it was famously in like terrible disrepair by the time he died, and he left everything in it to the nation, and Ruskin catalogued it and chucked away all the pornographic bits, and um, <laughs> but they but they have because there there's this friend of his Jones um, did paintings of it, we have a really good idea of what it actually looked like, right. um, which was nice. Yeah, that's great. And so, what was your you know, idea, or how did you approach that project? I'm going to just take my hand off this table. Sure. Because it's making funny sounds. Um, well, I loved the idea that the Turner was, Turner Contemporary was opening on this site. It was all about, meant to be all about Turner. And yet Turner himself was in some ways a massively egocentric individual. Yeah. It was all about Turner. It was all about him. And... Um, and so I thought, what would it be like if Turner had been actually a sort of slightly nicer person? And uh, Margate is really, you know, it's like Coney Island. It's a place that's fallen on pretty hard times. You know, mm -hmm. the moment you could actually fly somewhere to go swim in warm water, people in England stopped going to a lot of English seaside resorts like yeah. Margate. Um, 
And so I thought it would be great to do something that was really for Margate. And I liked the idea that at that point it was called the Turner Contemporary Gallery. They've since dropped the word gallery. And I thought it'd be great to go to the new Turner Contemporary Gallery and then to be able to go into so the archetypal old Turner Gallery. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to make it be a painting piece because, you know, you'd be crazy to go mano a mano with Turner as a painter. So I was like, you know, that'll just be like result in a whole bunch of people being like, well, she's no Turner. And I'd be like, <laughs> really? Oh, what a surprise. So... And he was also known for his engravings, you know, he, mm-hmm. there were he, these incredible books of his engravings. And um, I thought, well, I'll make an engraving piece. But Turner's so obsessed with light that I wanted to make it be about kind of light. So I came up with this idea, which I'd used previously, with these mirrors that are hand engraved um, with lights behind them. So you walk into this, you see this sort of mirror and you see this drawing of light. Um, and I like this idea that you could walk in and then you'd be inside a panorama, but the sizes of all the pieces of the panorama would be based on the paintings that Turner had left in his gallery at his death. So it was a quite complicated idea, but it was very Hall of Mirrors amusement arcade in production. So it was called Arcade Arcadia because mm-hmm. it really looks like an amusement hall full of mirrors, basically, um, at the same time as having this sort of, you know, lovely panorama of Margate. Um, kind of re- contemporary Margate, kind of reinserted into the aesthetic of Turner's time. And it's a sad piece. I mean, Arcade Arcadia is kind of about this idea that you know, human beings find some Arcadia, some beautiful place, and then they completely screw it up and then right. fill it with amusement arcades and they don't want it anymore. And in some ways, you know, this was a place that Turner loved and it really kind of got, it's so washed up now. It's having, a, it's having a little bit of a resurgence now, but at the time it was, it was fairly sad. Yeah. And um, Turner, for me, I was always, you know, really interested in Turner's paintings and this idea of like glazing them and them coming to life right before he, you know, showed them. And, and really the idea of the sublime in those paint a lot of the kind of washed out, you know, sea ones that are just... It, to me, it's just about the sublime in the landscape, you know. And um, I think about that sometimes in, in relation to contemporary art, you know, contemporary world, and where is the sublime today, you know. And I think a lot of times that it maybe it's found in, in digital media or technology because that seems to have supplanted the endless, you know, mm-hmm. the, the thing that we stand in awe of and can't truly understand other than, you know, the universe is you know, this technological sublime. Is it is sublime something you've ever thought about or have been interested in? No, I've thought about it a lot because it, like you said, I, I would totally agree. Um, I think the sublime is really, really hard to access. Um, in some ways, I've always, I've kind of approached it more from the sort of idea of the picturesque, which is a sort of idea of, of seeing nature primarily as it works kind of aesthetically, mm-hmm. and this, which I see as being something that's hugely problematic. I mean, both the sublime and the picturesque are these sort of weird, you know, kind of middle-class categories where people are privileging their own emotional aesthetic response to the world over any kind of real information. So yeah. it's you look at a landscape and you say, oh, this is so beautiful, you know, like, I like how the you know, sheep are pleasingly clumped. But you're not thinking about the actual sheep and eating the sheep or shearing the sheep. Or And the, and the sublime is similar. So you're sort of Ruskin standing, gazing at the Alps, overwhelmed with emotion, but yeah. at the same time, you know, 
he doesn't have the response of it that make a, maybe a local peasant would have. Would say, right. well, they know well, there's some goats there, or this is you know this is a terrible place to be because there's nothing to eat. So these are those they're very luxurious positions to take, and so they're kind of interesting vis-a-vis the art world. Yeah because the art world is also quite a luxurious space to inhabit, you know, to be able to you know, make work that you, it's just work because you decided it's work. Right. You, you're like, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I still pinch myself and think, really, that, that, that's, that's working out for me. I, I can't believe that worked out for me. You know, most people have to have real jobs. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a way in which this idea of the sublime mirrors the experience of art, and yet at the same time, it's it's something where I think we're we're I think we're at a time where people have a hard time being you know, really embracing this idea, making those sort of large extravagant claims for for art is difficult for people. Yeah, I think people are much more. We live in a society where people are much happier kind of quoting things, or things are cute rather than beautiful. Right, and that. That, I think, is interesting. I'm, I'm interested in what it takes to make a thing be truly beautiful versus kind of cute or interesting or quirky. Yeah, beauty is something that, you know, I've been fascinated with for a long time. And I think in my work, it's it's there. It's something yeah. that I'm really interested in. That's in the same way, is. you know, and I grew up surrounded by Warhol, you know. Mm-hmm. Warhol, being from Pittsburgh, yeah. was a kind of unconsciously yeah. always there and someone that I was had a huge impact, I think, subconsciously on my work in that sense of, you know, working class, just mm-hmm. in, in that popular imagery. I grew up watching cartoons and, you know, I've, I've always really enjoyed his work and, like, loved it as many people, you know, ebb and flow on that. But I, I feel like there was something in the process of what he's doing. There's, there's like, a sub, sublimation of you know, what's happened to our world as far as like commercialism or, you know, design. And, and I think I'm kind of interested in where that's gone with technology and just in recent years of how, you know, there's this endless information abyss, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much to distract people. There's so much information. It's, it's kind of like, I think, changing us in a way and it's changing our relationship to beauty and yeah. the way that we think deeply about things. I know it's a pretty open-ended statement, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately of how that enters our process about thinking about work and making images and how quickly our sensibilities and our attention span and our relationship to ideas like sublime or the beauty and things that take time are changing. I think it's also one of the reasons that painting is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, a very early piece I did was called Painting as a Low-Tech Special Effect. And it's, I've always been, really felt that's sort of true. There's a way in which it's like the last preserve of the amateur. Like, you don't need much money to make a painting. It's not like making a movie. You can make your own special effect. You can make whatever you like. And that sort of sense of isolation and personal freedom does have a really, I think, increasingly romantic allure yeah. in a time where everything is very fast. I, I feel like recently I've seen a lot of painting that looks fast, or there's this one kind of trick to it. And I wonder if that is an influence of how quick in our attention span is. you know. But painting has something different, because that process and physicality of it is undeniable, whereas you know now, with photography, anyone can be on a phone use a filter and yeah. they're pushing a button whereas a painting is you're actually pushing around paint there's an undeniable 
physical act that's going on that I think separates it in a way. I mean, that's why I love ceramics so much because there is oh, that. Oh, they're so sexy, yeah, aren't they? It, it's just something that has this this history and life to it that's, you know, I think the, the uh, process of it is so, you know, alluring, you know, how it's made and that connection to the human to create this thing that's to be used. I've always, you know, really been interested in ceramics too. Well, ceramics are lovely, especially because they are useful. You can use them for something. Yeah, you could pick them up. So, I mean, mm. no, you know, not necessarily, but um, but there is something about that the sort of tactile nature of ceramics that's also super sexy and lovely and delicious. I yeah. Mean, but I think paint is like that too. I mean, I love painting for that reason because there's something about um, just the sheer physical physicality of it that that's. Um, it's just fun. And it's fun in a way that is very calming, even if you are anxious about the whole process, um, about what your piece and whether your painting will be any good or whether it makes any sense what you're doing. There's something about the shit, the, uh, the act of painting that I've always really, really enjoyed. Um, yeah, and I think with ceramics too, as opposed to painting, when it does, it has, a lot of times it has a utilitarian you know, it has this use that you could pick it up and use it. And the, the pieces that aren't have that tension between it being in a medium that is so often thought of as utilitarian, you know. Well, they're kind of willfully perverse yeah. because, you know, they could be useful, but they've chosen not to be. Right, right. <laughs> and paintings are perverse in the sense that they don't even offer you that a bit. It's just about that. Yeah, they're, they're just kind of... I mean, that was what was fun about making this piece for the Barnes was taking these making these portraits of these weird pieces of metalwork that Barnes had collected. And he sort of made them useless by hanging them on the wall as this kind of ornaments or, or artworks. But then you take them one step further and then they become paintings and then they're totally useless. Yeah. You know, and, and they exist only on the sort of aesthetic level. And it was really fun. It felt quite violent, but it also felt very funny to have this sort of applied versus fine arts distinction just crumble away. Yeah. I feel like and that aspect of your work where you're responding to something where you are. I, in my work recently, I've had the opportunity to work on different projects that are you know, kind of shaped or I'm responding to a specific, whether it's working in the public realm or working with uh, collaborating with someone on something. And I really enjoy the work becoming like influenced by others and you know when I do animations I collaborate with people on the animation sometimes or the music music's a big part of that and I love what you know I'm given by others and mm -hmm. that process you know um, is that something that it seems like it you know weighs heavily in your work or at least you're having the opportunity to like work like with the barns you're working with those objects or the nudes you're working with those images in the museum but the Whitney it's recreating all those images you know is that yeah I think maybe it, maybe it's that I secretly think that the furniture of my own mind is just not that fascinating I mean I I, I think that that's Warholian <laughs> he always felt you know I'm not interesting the world is I'm just reflecting it was really about yeah. him but you know yeah. he had that feeling like well my personal ideas maybe aren't that interesting but I'm interesting the rest of the world's interesting and that's what I want to show yeah I think that that that's something that I really relate to um, 
I, I do, and I, I really enjoy the opportunity to go to some new place and yeah. and try to think about um, what's missing. Like if I went here, what would make this be a real, really sort of perfect knife through the heart experience, right. where I would think about this experience differently? Yeah. Um, what would make me have a new thought? And I don't want to control what kind of thought people have. I'm, I'm trying really hard not to be didactic. I'm not really interested in saying, well, this is what you should you know, think about. I, I, but I do want people to walk away thinking, oh, I never noticed this about this place before. I, mean, yeah. I never realized that this was here. You know, yeah, I wanted people to think about how ludicrous that, um, the fact is that Yankee Stadium's slogan, slogan is the home of the stars. I was like, really? The stars? <laughs> the, the starry firmament above? Or? Right. <laughs> you ever think about how weird that is? Yeah, so it's I, fascinating. I think I'm really interested in that and, you know, how different people in different places perceive the world differently or customs or environmentally, you know, some people go to a baseball game and have a completely different experience than somewhere else. Like when you go to a baseball game in Japan, it's so energetic, loud, and kind of fervent. You know, it's a totally different experience to ours, which is much more laid back. You bring your kid, you get some food, you walk around. You know, it's different places, different experiences. And I think when you're making work in, and you're showing it somewhere else, I, I always feel like it's a great opportunity to kind of play on that or take that as part of the the idea of the work or to influence the work and see how you can talk to people somewhere else about the differences between and the similarities between people. I think you get a tremendous amount back. I mean, I think that's why doing the New York Beautification Project was such a formative event for me because it meant that I spent a year on the streets painting these you know, little oval landscapes illegally and having all kinds of conversations with people about art. Um, yeah. So you would have people who would you know, say, well, you know, they're doing it all wrong. Where's your crew? You know, you can't even see it from a car. This is just going to get you nowhere. And then there were people who were like, well, can you please come and paint my truck? Yeah. And, you know, I'm professionally evict people for a living. I really want you to paint my truck. You'd be like, okay, okay. Um, it, was a, it was a really interesting experience because it made me realize that art is so closely bound up with people's desires. Yeah. Um, you know, what's one of the fun things is that when you're an artist, you go meet people and you say you're an artist and you always get these interesting responses like, you know, I always wanted to be a figure skater. And you're like, hmm. And then you realize that art exists as this kind of space of desire in, yeah. in our society where people kind of imagine it as this space of freedom. And, and of course, that's not, that's a, that's not really true. But it's really interesting because it does give you this opportunity to say, well, you know, what 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 does this situation really want? Yeah. You know, what's the secret hidden desire? And and you know, desires are always embarrassing and, and weird and seductive and, and, and ultimately can never be fulfilled. Yeah. I mean ultimately you, you always fail. So. And you're bearing yourself you're really, you know, kind of making yourself open when you're putting all that out there. I think that's you know, I just coming up with the idea of something I think can sometimes be the most difficult and challenging and um, part of the process. You know, it's it actually physically making it is yeah. something you can kind of work on. But the the ideas, it's such a hard thing. You know, there there are no rule. I think a lot of times people do think like, oh, artists, you got to make. I mean, you just get to do whatever. You know, but that freedom or that not having those rules or those boundaries necessarily 
is really the hard part to navigate. You know, it's finding your voice and finding, like, oh, I have this to say. This is interesting, or is it interesting? Yeah. You know. No, I think that's that's really true. I think that's one of the reasons that working site specifically can be great because there are limitations. Yeah. You have some rules, so that makes it instantly easier. But then you're right about that sense of freedom, because I, I always think that you can tell when an idea is a good one if you're immediately mortified by it. If you're embarrassed, that means you have something at stake. Yeah. You know, it, it means that you care about it. You, you're risking something. Right. If you immediately think, oh, well, that's going to be great, you're like, oh, that's a bad idea. That's yeah. a bad, that's a terrible idea. And I mean, artwork should be like falling in love with someone where you just, you're like, you know, you're blushing, you're mortified, you can't believe you're putting yourself out there. You're like, oh no, do I have to do this? And then you, those are the good ones. Well, with the, the beautification project, I mean, did you, how did that process feel to do that, you know? Well, at the time, I mean, it started off as being very much a commentary on Giuliani's kind of crackdown on graffiti. Yeah because that was what was happening then. And I, I had this theory that um, basically it was not just this, you know, the part of the kind of this crackdown was bound up in obviously like race and gender and also in the aesthetics yeah. of graffiti. And I thought, well, if you change all those things, you know, but I'm still breaking the law, is it gonna be, cha is it gonna be different? Right. And so that's sort of where it started. Though it kind of started haphazardly because I did this piece, um, did the first one for this place in Highbridge Park that had been renovated in this park. And they rather misguidedly decided that they would have um, an art event to lure people into this park, which they had previously very sensibly not been going into because, I mean, when they renovated it, they found like a torso in a bag. And, Things like that, and uh, and and the whole time I spent painting there, there were people either masturbating or having sex in the bushes the whole time, um, for like a really long time, and um, but it was kind of you know I did it, and people and I remember this this boy coming out with his girlfriend, and he was like, so you know how did you get this job? And I was like, well, I just sort of decided to do it, and he was like, how much are they paying you? And I was like, nothing. He's like, you got to get a better job. <laughs> But I thought, no, this is a great job. You know, this is this is a perfect job. I'm going to do these all over the city because the more I thought about it, the more interesting it seemed. And it ended up being interesting in a way that I hadn't originally anticipated, which was that it wasn't just about this sort of inevitable privilege of whiteness and of being a woman, mm -hmm. um, but it was also very much about this sort of converse, larger conversation with people about what they thought art should be. Yeah. And so a lot of people would come up and they'd be like, oh, you're an artist, you know, I saw the sunset, you should have been there. And I'd be like, why? Why, why would I appreciate the sunset more than you? Right. Or, or like, you know, you should paint my daughter, you know. I'd be like, why should I paint your daughter? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. And all these sort of desires that people expressed were incredibly important. They, made, they kind of were the, the nucleus for all kinds of other projects that I did afterwards. Yeah. And they were all just shamelessly stolen from people on the street who were talking to me. Yeah. And um, that, I've really enjoyed that. Like, I, I, love, I love the kind of randomness of things, just, to, you know, the universe presents things to you, and then you think, oh, that, that's much more interesting than I previously thought. It really is. I spent, I think, you know, a good 10, at least a good 10 years 
you know, when I, after I moved to New York, working in my studio all the time and never working in the public realm. And then I had a couple opportunities to do murals and be out. And I loved talking to people. I thought it would be annoying yeah. that people would just come up and be like, hey, what are you doing? You know, And they do that. But it was really the dynamic, the energy of it, and then just listening to people and the conversations. I really loved the process. And now it's like any time I have any chance to do something out in the public, I, I really, I jump at it. Because I feel like you get a complete different response and, and you know, influence from the public than you do from showing in a gallery where it really those openings I feel like you could probably script what you're going to yeah. be talking about in the reaction and congratulations you know that's so, <laughs> the sort of things that everyone yeah. says you know but yeah. when you're out on the street like the last time I did well actually the first time I did a mural on Houston Street I thought I was going to get killed by some crazy guy who when I was projecting the image he walked into the light and he got enraged and he was on something, you know, and he came after us and it was wild, you know, but it was exhilarating. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. You know, yeah. when people beat you up, that's always exciting. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like making work while someone's after you. It's, you don't really encounter that in the studio too often, but in the street you can get that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was, an, it was, I feel like it was a really um, inspiring process, you know, and it makes me think about my work differently going back into the studio and making work when it's just me. You know, you have a different kind of consciousness, I think. Also, make work that you make for the public, you know, it's going to be experienced very differently. Yeah. Um, I did a piece where I was, you know, pretending to be a sort of a street artist, and I was doing, you know, 15-minute um, portraits, not tremendously successful ones, because they were 15-minute portraits of people on the on the street. And then people had to evaluate them, and right. then I would, they would get the... Get the drawing and the form at the end and when I was on the street people were just harsh you know they would just be like I don't know you know I think my uh, look my neck is too fat you know and my eye where's my left eyebrow you know they, they were just I would say that 70% of the comments were negative except yeah. for you know some teenage boys were psyched like, I look like Wolverine you know <laughs> like okay you know so but I did the same project later as part of the Whitney Biennial, mm -hmm. and suddenly all of the comments like, it was such an honor to meet Ellen, it was such a pleasure. And I had not got better in the intervening years. You know, I had not right. like I'd been practicing my 15-minute my portraiture skills. So it was if the anything, same approach. I think I got worse, I think, actually. <laughs> so I'm looking at all these dreadful drawings I'm doing of people where I'm just like, oh, man, that just doesn't look anything like that person. And all of the comments suddenly are just, you know, completely different. And it's goes, it goes back to context. It's all about context. It is. Yeah. Well, you've seen, I forget who it is, but a, a video of a cellist in the New York City subway, and he's playing, and no one, <laughs> no one stops. Maybe one person drops a quarter or a dollar yeah. in there, but everyone walks by, and he's amazing. But, you know, if Lincoln Center, it's a different reaction. So yeah. it's, it's, I don't know if it's just natural or if it's unsettling or if it's depressing or that kind of how much context weighs into the way things are interpreted. You know, I could take a show that's in Iowa downtown on a, you know, storefront gallery in Iowa somewhere and then put that at David's Werner and imagine how different the reaction is it, to that. Yeah, it'd be night and day. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's just context. People need... I feel like they need an element of context to just place 
things. I, well, I think it's also that we don't live in a culture that values visual culture that highly. Yeah. So people often feel really insecure about looking at things. So you see people looking for clues to say, well, should I, should I like this? Is this good? I'm, is, uh, you know, I think this is one of the big problems that you have with contemporary art is that a lot of people are just anxious. They're made yeah. anxious by it. They're like, is, is, this, is, this, is this making fun of me? Should I, should I like this? Is it good? How can I tell? People are much more, I mean, you're so in the music world, but one of the things that I always envy that world is that people have the courage of their convictions yeah. about music. They like it or they don't like it. They like it. They don't like it. They're not worried that you know, they should like it, but they don't like it. You know, they, or, or that occurs much less. Right. Um, whereas with art, you have a lot more anxiety. And that I always think is a shame because I think there's not any real reason for that. Yeah. It should be... It should be okay to say, well, actually, I hate this. You know, this is not for me. My taste is more this. I happen to like this. Yeah. But there's something um, inhibiting about, I think, the way art is sometimes presented for people. And one of the things that's great about making public art is you know, people are fascinating and interesting. And if you give them something interesting and fascinating to deal with, some will like it, some will hate it. And... I like I like being in spaces where you know you have the opportunity to be judged. Yeah. But to be judged in a way that has very little to do with, you know, where you stand in the hierarchy. Right. Well, so much of, you know, artwork is is sort of interpreted in the context of historical like its relationship to history. It's Yeah. It's very insular in a way, you know. And there's something kind of beautiful about that, you know, in a way. Because it's, it's its own language, yeah. and you have to study a language yeah. in order to understand really what it's saying, you know, but, but it, it can be limiting. And I think it's extremely off-putting in the environment in which most of the time art is displayed and the kind of the gallery and museum context and how it's sometimes the stuffiness yeah. of that, you know? I mean, I obviously love museums and galleries. Yeah. So to me, that's, that's not been a big issue. But for a lot of people, it is. It's a huge barrier. And, and that's that's sad. Like, I would like there to be more art everywhere. Right, yeah. I would like people to be, you know, to care more about how things look. Um, I mean, I think the sort of way in which we think of art as something that just belongs to the elite is, is really sad. Yeah. Like, it should be for everyone. Why should it, why? And I think the sort of lack of care and love for our visual environment is part of, like, a larger lack and care for the environment and for each other. Yeah. So when people always say, oh, well, you know, public art is a luxury or do, you know, making something beautiful is a luxury, I say, no, you know, the, the luxury, the important part is caring. Right. It's caring about how things look, caring about, about things being, you know, beautiful is, 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 is important. We're not just all, we don't just all exist just as consumers. Right. You know, people are all people who dream and love and hope and... And part of that should be sort of being inter having interesting and provocative and perhaps beautiful or strange surroundings, mm -hmm. and not just being kind of trapped in the middle of a whole series of advertisements. Which right. Well, and for all the art world's kind of, you know, the elite side yeah. of the art world or the non-inclusive side. I mean, those galleries are open to the They're public. Free. They're free. Yeah. Anyone yeah. can go. And a lot of museums you can get in free. You can yeah. find a way, or you know, suggested donations, or you can. 
you can see that stuff, you know. And I think it's just maybe the air about it. But with music, that's something that, yeah. that you know, I used to play music out, and I really miss that kind of live show, that feeling of connecting with people. And it, I, I am envious in a way of that kind of creative expression where it's not hinging so much on its reference. And it's more of people who are either into the yeah. music or they're not into the music. Yeah, that directness. I mean, yeah, how can you not be jealous? Yeah. It's just, you know, there's a layer there that that's removed, that you have this one-on-one -on -one connection. And, you know, I, was music something in your life that you grew up with? Or, I mean, what was your relationship to music? I have a, I mean, I'm not a particularly musical person. Like, I love music, and I love, I love to sing, like, lots and lots of very sad, dirgy kind of folk songs. But mm -hmm. that's... Um, I think that was because I was such a melodramatic individual as a teenager that I learned all these <laughs> really depressing <laughs> songs at the time. Um, but yeah, music is not this huge part of my life, but it's something that I'm, yeah, I, I listen to music, obviously, but I'm yeah. not, I'm um, not musical at all. My, I used to have to cheer up my piano teacher by telling her how much my sister had practiced. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it's something that I've, you know, it's like ingrained within me. I can't live a day without, you know, in the studio, I'm always listening to music. And I even, I think I go to that side of it where it becomes referential. Like I can listen to free jazz and love it and appreciate it. And I know that it's, it's because of the historical reference. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's two kinds of people. One who would listen to, you know, Ornette Coleman free jazz record and be like, what the, <laughs> what yeah. is this? You know, I can't. And then those who kind of appreciate what it was coming out of, it's sort of, relevance mm -hmm. to the history of the people who were making that music at that time yeah. and breaking free from conventions. There's all this, you know, backstory to it that was really interesting. But Well, it's always, I mean, I think that's true for anything, is that the more you know about it and the more you learn about something, the more fascinating it becomes. Yeah. And it just becomes richer. And yeah. I think, you know, art is, is, very, is very similar. But um, one way, so, well, yeah, I think people are more hesitant to go for the initial, oh, I love it, and then learn, which right. would be, for some reason, and I'm not sure why that is, but that seems to be, um, I don't know, a thing. The way it happens. Yeah, yeah I don't know. But, um, you not, know. Or not for everyone. I mean, there are lots of people who are like me as a kid who just like, this is amazing, and yeah. I want to know all about it, and how is it made, and I want to make one. And so, you know, it just seems that... The sort of ability to connect instantly with music seems to be just more widespread. Yeah, so. it's language. It's a language that maybe speaks to you a little more directly than. Yeah. I mean, art is a language. It's all language, like the way we communicate through, mm -hmm. whether it's visual images or sonically. Yeah. I think sonically has, I don't know, for some reason it gets to your brain quicker, or yeah. it's more of a like a visceral reaction to music, you know, whereas artwork is filtered through a visual language. It's a little more complex. It's a little more removed, and maybe. A little more difficult to navigate yeah. if you don't work within that language. Yeah, and I think it, I think it also just depends. Like I was always a super visual person, so yeah. for me, how things look was always you know, really, really important and interesting, and I cared about it massively. Yeah. Um, not everyone is, is that way, of course. So, who are the? Is there is there any contemporary artists or like what have been things that you've been looking at recently that have really gotten you excited oh god it's 
always the worst. The moment people ask me that question, my mind I always to, goes totally to. blank. <laughs> I have to ask it. I'm always really interested in what people are, are interested in or what's kind of inspiring them. You know, it doesn't have to be contemporary work, but it could be, you know, just things in the environment that you're looking at that are... What am I looking at that's inspiring me right now? God. No, no, I can think of nothing. Like, it's like I have, like, no life. Um. <laughs> besides, besides graveyards. Besides way? graveyards, I have been looking and documenting a tremendous amount of graveyards. I mean, the thing that I'm actually obsessed with right now is ornamentation. Mm -hmm. Because um, I, I've, partly because I've been asked to do a lot of public pieces. And so I've been thinking about the role of ornament. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I met this guy when I was making... Um, this piece for the poor, sad, now defunct Corcoran, um, which is sort of about aliens falling in love with neoclassical architecture. Yeah. I was trying to find someone to build me a really big pillar because I wanted to make a spaceship. And I found this guy in Bushwick um, who has this tiny business um, making these pressed wood ornaments mm -hmm. where you kind of mix glue with sawdust and you press it into these molds. And so he's got like 6,000 of these molds and they're all, you know, kind of weird ornaments mm -hmm. that people would have stuck to their walls. And and he said, yeah, it's really a dying business and people just don't you know, understand ornament anymore. And, and I was thinking, yeah, this is really interesting because, you know, there is that kind of um, loose kind of modernism, like, you know, ornament and crime view where ornament is just like this, this horrible excrescence on right. the beautiful functional modernist building and like it's, it's all at the death you know ornament is just you know so impossible but i thought actually ornament is really more interesting than that so i i've that in some ways ornament is about adding this element of play mm -hmm. and this element of, of decoration or beauty two things that are meant to you know have another function and so i just become weirdly obsessed with ornaments so i've been like going to see mr lupo a lot and uh, we just you know i just had him make all of his leaf ornaments which was a you know, couple of hundred leaf ornaments and then i ran out of money um and but i'm thinking of making i want to make some sort of museum of ornaments so i'm kind of going around cataloging ornaments right now. Um, so that's been on your visual radar recently. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to emerge from my big mapping phase, which I really feel like is history, and I keep on being asked, ending up doing more maps. And I feel like, no, I want to make ornaments. But Have you seen the Chuck Jones animation? I think it's called A Dot and a Line, Romance in Lower Mathematics. No, I haven't. It's, I, sounds, I think that sounds like something I would like. Oh, it's beautiful. It's I grew up on Bugs Bunny and Chuck Jones and you know Roadrunner. That's a huge part of my youth was watching those, and I realized my aesthetic is really tied to that. Like it's something that, I really love. That makes love. sense. Yeah, <laughs> and um, there's this animation is about a a line who's trying to seduce a dot, but he's too stiff and oh. too rigid. Oh. But then he. <laughs> He breaks out of that, but it's it's an amazing animation. I mean, visually, it's graphically, it's beautiful, and the way it's done. But you should definitely uh, check should, it out. I should definitely check that. That's out. a good one. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk. It was great talking with you. It was a pleasure. Two hearts.